Welcome, 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 welcome to Cheers the Business. Welcome to Cheers the Business podcast. My plan is to do the best I can today. And you can create your own path. Then why aren't we doing this? I think it, it stems from a few different things. One is I don't like to follow rules. Um, so even I've tried to work for other people and I'm just really bad at it. Hey everybody, welcome to Cheers to Business Podcast. My name is John Kublik. What's up everybody, John Hill here. And today we are at New Braunfels Brewing Company, right in downtown New Braunfels with one of the owners and the man himself, Kelly Meyer. How are you this morning? I'm fantastic, thanks for asking. So, we're super excited about having you on the show. We had um, Keith from Guadalupe Brewing, you know, obviously same sort of industry, but y'all have a different setup and, and a different feel and, and even a different style beer, correct? Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, kind of, what kind of made you decide to jump into craft brewing oh the whole brewery the The whole brewery let's go from the beginning um probably some maybe a a lack of focus and (laughs) um, desire not to work i don't (laughs) actually my wife and i used to own a different business and we sold it and at that point in time i had a little bit of flexibility in what i could do going forward and i'd always want to do something creative and i kind of talked to her one night there definitely was drinking involved i said hey let's do a brewery and she said, that sounds like a decent idea. And then I had quotes for equipment on the desk and within a week and just sort of roll with it. And I think she realized about six months later what she'd gotten into. <laughs> it was just, I wanted to do something fun. I actually had literally wanted to either do a winery, a distillery, or a brewery. I was kind of happy with any of them. But in 2011, the Texas wine industry was not quite what it is today. So it wasn't, that wasn't interesting to me. Um, to do scotch, which is really the main liquor that I'm a big fan of. I'd had to move to Scotland. <laughs> you happen to like New Braunfels. So yeah. a brewery in my hometown was kind of the next obvious choice. But you'll see a lot of those influences in the beer that we make. There's, there's wine in some of them. There'll be a liquor and spirit to some of them as well. Uh, simply because of those you know, different loves that I have. So, so were you like were you like some sort of chemist with this shit? Like you studied this and knew all about it? Or were you something you just kind of... Picked up along the did you build a plane in the middle of the air? How did that work? Yeah, I mean basically when it comes to how to open a brewery, yeah. I have actually thought a couple of times about writing a book about how not to open a brewery. <laughs> uh, which would be an autobiography. Uh, and we literally I didn't have a business plan and, and obviously we, we didn't need to go to a bank, and so that was an advantage slash disadvantage. Sure. When you do go to a bank, you have to be more so you to make a business plan. Yeah. Um, but even still, I mean a lot of those projections are guesswork at best. So I think getting in and having the flexibility to my theory is, is less chemistry based, it's more rip it and rip it. Yeah. And so, hey, we want to make a beer that tastes like this, how the hell do we figure that out? Right. There's a lot of trial and error. I, was, uh, I just uh, started reading a new book by Eric Ries called The Startup Way. I don't know if you've heard, heard of his mm-hmm. first book, it's called The Lean Startup. It's really good. Um, um, or wait, what is it? What is it? Lean? Yeah, anyway, so it's Eric Ries' new book. Eric Ries' new book, and, and he, he had just kind of said, like, it's interesting to, when you talk about the projections kind of being fake, it's interesting, he was like, because in the venture capitalist world, they want you to have those performers, they want you to have those numbers. He was like, but don't they realize that they're all fake? Like, none of this is real? Like, we're basically projecting off of our own fantasies? Yeah. He was like, but... 
funny enough, a lot of them do think that it's real. So when you when you had your plan, right, even if it was in your head, how close did it go from head to execution? Uh, or did where there's a lot of changes, a lot of pivots, a lot of you know uh, issues that come up that you didn't think about. Uh, there were a ton of issues I can't really <laughs> think about. Uh, I did hire a consultant about uh, seven months after we opened, and so literally at that point we had had a small system. The idea was to do this very small production, and it would be cool to go to a restaurant or a bar, you know, hang out at the Phoenix and my beers there. Yeah, but it wasn't necessarily like how do we go coast to coast and potentially internationally. Um, so there was a lot of learning and changing as we went, um, but I would say that, to be quite honest, that we finally hit our stride and we finally figured out who we want to be and how we want to do it about eight months ago. Really? <laughs> and so how long have y'all been actually in business? We moved in this building in January 2012. Okay. Wow. Okay. So five years or going on five, wait, six years, right? Yeah. It's like six year in, in so January. Yeah. We kind of don't count that beginning part because it was more of a hobby than a business. Mm -hmm. So that summer we literally tore the brewery apart, ordered equipment from Europe and started over. Like we scrubbed the floors, we rebuilt and we changed the entire production line to a 500 gallon system from a 60 gallon system. Um, so we consider May to be our actual anniversary of doing it as a business and doing it correctly, <laughs> post-consultant, you know, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, so that must have been a pretty expensive change. Was that hard for you as the business owner, or, did, or was it just for, at that moment in the time, like it was the only thing you could do, so it really didn't matter? No, I mean, at that point, we invested very little in the startup of the original brewery, and my wife and I kind of, it was a very hard decision. And I remember sending an email out to all of our contacts on our email list and just saying, look guys, here's the deal. We are either staring down, shutting down completely because as you can, if anyone who knows me knows, I don't like to do things that I'm not good at. And it was fairly clear at that point that the system, everything that we had built wasn't making fantastic beer. And so I didn't get in it to make mediocre beer or to make entry level beer. We wanted to make something amazing. And so it was either we're staring down, closing down completely, or we're going to invest about $500,000 and make this into a real business. And my wife and I agonized over it for a while, but we hired the consultant, honestly, partially to decide, to yeah. have him come in and go, look, dude, here's what you have, here's the assets, here's the advantages, the market competition, here's where I think you could fit. And if he said we couldn't, we were gonna take his advice and shut down. Um, he was a unique cat. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how much. I'm glad that he did tell us to continue. And was this title beer consultant? Dude, Just you, curious. You don't even want to know. So here's how this goes down. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, do you have time? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. So, so anyways, uh, we're, we're, I'm like, okay, I got to have a consultant. This is state, the next stage, right? And so I look around for beer consultants, and there's a few. Being a small industry that's very specialized, they're super expensive, like 1200 bucks a day plus travel expenses and stuff. And I'm looking on this one forum that we have. It, it's a kind of a professional forum that does uh, resales for stuff, and then it also has like a you know, discussion forums for brewers to get together and figure out how to get cans right or whatever. Um, and there's this guy who made a post to somebody answering a question saying, hey, I happen to live in San Antonio. Um, I'm a consultant. Give me a call. And there's no post afterwards. I don't think I ever called or not. So I called them. I'm like, hey, you're in San Antonio and you're a consultant? Turns out this guy claims that he was the founding brewer of Rogue in Portland, Oregon. Wow. One of like the top five, sure. the original five breweries yeah. that kind of created the craft beer movement. And he was probably 65 at the time, super long beard, like 
Uh, no, I'm not even lying. He literally was half high half the time. So <laughs> I actually amortized what he had charged me per hour and then added 1.6 to it because that's what I was paying per hour because I he would tell me the same stuff over and over because he just messed up. You know? <laughs> but the advice he gave us was sound and like I told my wife, I'm like, I think he might be insane, but he's also making great points on some of these sure, things. Sure. So I'm seeing the logic. So I'm going to run with it. You're going to sift through the yeah. bullshit and just kind of get through the good stuff, right? So, yeah. so what was it before... You know this whole kind of come to Jesus moment as far as with the consultant all that. So was it before? Was it a was it different types of beers, or was it just the beer wasn't what you wanted it to be, or was it um, you know you, you had to shift into a new market with different types of beers afterwards? What was the thing that you know it's it kind of shifted there? So there was a couple of things. One, um, and probably most importantly, you had a a gym owner running a brewery. And so there was a massive learning curve that I had read a ton of books and done a ton of brewing, but at the end of the day, um, I didn't have that depth of experience that would have been obviously very valuable. So that was one of the things the consultant was going to help me with uh, as far as the recipes and the formulations. But two was that we had built a small system and the technology on the small system isn't anywhere close to what this is. So uh, long story short, it was very hard to make professional beer consistently and a guy with 10 years experience could have done it. Um, but we we were never going to be a great brewery on that small system, for one, because the recipes weren't gonna turn out right, but two, because um, at the end of the day, we couldn't make enough. So that system at 60 gallons makes four full-size kegs. So every day I come in to make beer, I can make four kegs, give it to four counts, and now I'm out. Um, now we make 27 kegs every time we brew. So different. Where that goes for me is, I professionally kind of look at markets. That's what I do. And I know that I've noticed something. I really started with you guys is that it really got me into craft beers. I never took the full dive into the craft, whatever the word is, um, until I started picking up on this whole sour beer thing going on. And I, I know that you guys, what's the word, dabble in the sours quite often. And, and I love them. They're actually great. Um, one of my favorite beers you all was that uh, Florida, how do you say it? Florida Mall? Well, Florida Mall, Lemongrass yeah. Style. Oh, I love that beer. Um, was that something that, that came through that, or was that something y'all were doing before? I mean, the sour thing kind of caught fire, I don't know, a few years back or whatever, but it seems to me you guys do really well with that. And then, was that something that came through that whole consulting thing, or you just love sour beers, or what? No, in fact, Greg had never made a sour beer, um, but... Funny story, one of the big problems with that original system was that it didn't have the, um, it wasn't closed off well enough to be able to allow us to use kind of that laboratory setting. Uh, so long story short, we were making sour before we knew why and that they were exactly. <laughs> um, and if, if people ask all the time, like, what would you go back and change? The number one thing I'll go back and change is, is keep making that stuff, but make it better, figure out what we're doing. Sure. Um, we actually dabbled in sours almost from the day we reopened. So basically what I did is I, I brewed a batch on the old system before we got rid of it. I left it in here throughout the whole rebuild process in an open bucket. And so we literally cultured wild yeast and bacteria from our air here in downtown New Braunfels, which is a different species, different behavior than it would be in San Antonio, Dallas, Belgium, wherever. So it does give us kind of that unique flavor of New Braunfels. That was an experiment early, early on that we've learned a lot through. And we are now 95% sour as far as our output of our brewery. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I love that. Well, and I think back to your point, John, I mean, you and 
Kelly, you know, kind of understanding your market, understanding the beer and, and just kind of letting the market take control. And, you know, you have 95%, you know, sour output just because what you do is great and that's awesome. And I think that your other beer is really good as well. Do you think that the flavor profile and the recipe that y'all use is more palatable than others or is the environment more inviting for other people to be experimental? Because y'all have a lot of experimental I would say beer, a lot of different flavors like the pickle beer and, you know, those sort of things. Um, do you find that, the that you know, your consumers who don't typically have craft beer are more experimental coming in here trying more and that they're like, oh, wow, this is really good? Or do you find that people that like sours just like sours? I actually got a picture from Elisa's boyfriend. He's a pilot. He sent me a picture of the pickle beer that you guys mm -hmm. I don't even know where the hell he was at. I think he wasn't even in the country. Oh, he right. was like, hey, man, you, have you tried this pickled sour or whatever from your uncle's brewing company? It was like at 2 in the morning. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> but that was one of the, kind of spoke to it. I was like, holy shit, man. I don't even know this guy's at. And he's drinking beer and making new problems. <laughs> yeah. It's still, one of the, the cool thing is about sour, and really the reason that we do it is twofold. One, it, it's extremely in my opinion, more palatable. It, it pairs better with food. It kind of bridges that gap between beer and wine in a lot of ways. And part of that is just that it's a dry product. It's fermented all the way. We're able to add in kind of that acidity like a white wine would have or red wine even too. And so it, it, it's a little bit more kind of drinkable. It's, it's more interesting, right? Sure. The creativity side. And then the other side of it is that we're not the best in the world by any means, but that's what we're good at. So the Luke Weiss, the Shiva beers that we make that are not sour, those are good beers. But when it comes to a Hefeweizen in Texas, there's no shortage. Like, there's a whole bunch. And if you put them all side by side, ours might be 5, 7, 12% better than the other one to you. But that's not exciting. You're not going to get freaked out and, and drive three hours over to buy that Hefeweizen versus the one that you can get. Right. Um, so as much as we still make those beers and we still like what they do, these are beers that you can taste. Like the Heaven Essence that we're going to come out with in about two weeks is literally one of the most amazing beers I've ever tasted. Not just that we've made, but we're extremely proud of it. And, and it, because of that, that's why we delved into that side of the business more because it's something that we can do a great job at. Maybe not necessarily better than somebody else, but we, we are very proud of what we put out. I think that's a fundamental concept in any production-based business. If you're, if you're making something, you better be proud of it. Absolutely. How many hours of work is it to perfect, like, to get to that beer? Yeah, it depends. Uh, well, as far as the production of it, the hard part about sours, mm -hmm. uh, a few of our beers, like Cosmic Dancer, um, uh, Sangre Shiva, those sit in self-medication, those sit in the barrel for a year and a half, year and a, half, a year sometimes. Yeah. So we don't even exactly know what it's going to taste like until that point. And we've gotten to the point that three months in, six months in, we know where it should be in the projection and the production. But even there, we've only done like three to four batches of some of those year-long wow. beers. So we're still kind of, you know, every time we make one, we're like, oh, dude, if we had made this the first time, you know, <laughs> we're all still learning. And sure. That is great. I can't imagine a business of doing something like that. I think it's, I think it's fascinating, though, because you're all like you said the creativity side you're always excuse me you're always experimenting you're always trying something new you're perfecting your craft uh, is that part of the drive for you is that there's always a problem to be solved too like that you know you said that you had another business and then you sold it was part of the reason that you got out of the other business was because it kind of got on you know autopilot and you well, needed something challenge uh, we used to own eight anytime fitnesses 
Oh. So we started, the one across the street that we had downtown here was the 37th. Now there's like 4,000. Wow. Um, so we got in kind of early. We opened eight of those and had a small chain here in Central Texas. So was it back to the back to what I was saying? Did is it was it that it got into autopilot or was it was it interesting? Do you feel like this business for you could be like that where it just kind of gets you know every day just kind of normal and you're going to want something different or do you always see like this is always expanding? This is always going to be different. There's always problems to be solved. I think this will be one of those businesses, in my personal opinion, that I'll be 90 years old and still own a percentage of. So yeah. my exit strategy might be let somebody take over and they have 60% of it, but sure. this is something I want to be in my family forever. Uh, even my kids are inspired by what we do. My daughter's drawn some labels, my, my son's drawn some labels for us. So <laughs> yeah, the creativity side is something that I, I don't think will ever go away. I've had three moments where I sat down and went, how are we going to do better than we did? And we still continue to improve, but where it concerns me, yeah, where I'm like, I don't, where can we go from here? Right. And then we blaze a whole new trail with something different, and it, so it stays fun. Is it? Is it? Uh, what is your role versus your wife's role? So y'all are both active in this business, correct? I mean, y'all are both owner operators. You know, I, what what do you do best? What does your wife do best? Or is it kind of a mix? Yeah, well, we actually segmented our jobs. Uh, we. When we got married in 2000, we literally, she went to work for me on the road, traveling around the country doing uh, consulting work, and we learned very, very quickly that that doesn't work. <laughs> Not only do we work best as equal partners, we work best as equal partners who don't oversee one another. <laughs> so she runs uh, essentially all the stuff that I can't do, which would be the, the paperwork, the taxes, um, the payroll, all that kind of stuff. The, the numbers are things that just... I like to sit down once a month in a meeting and go over them, but I'm not inspired and excited sure. to do that. Sure. So it works way better for her to do that. And then she also runs the whole tap room. So everything here, all these decorations, um, the, the management of the team that's up here, that, that's all under her jurisdiction. That's awesome. And then you found, obviously, that it's working out really well. Um, did, what kind of hours are you working right now? I mean, you've kind of five years in, you know, it's kind of steady. I'm sure from when you started to where you're at now is probably different, but I can't imagine that it's a not Monday through Friday, eight to five for you. Uh, being a small business owner, I mean, I'm sure you put in a lot of hours. What does that look like? And how does that kind of affect your family? Or is it a family thing that you do together? I mean, you said your kids are active as well, but. Yeah, well, my kids are more active on the, the, product, like the yeah. production side as opposed to being, they don't, they don't serve beer in the brewery. <laughs> not yet. But, yeah, they might, they might one day. Um, but as far as like my schedule, I typically work eight to four most days. Um, and then there's the exception where like this week I'm going to Houston for two days. So I'll be staying overnight on Tuesday. I'll work, you know, both those days kind of pull through, but, but I'll be back Wednesday by seven or something like that. So you kind of feel like you've kind of got out of that 24 hour a day kind of, you know, every waking moment of your life is solving some sort of problem. You can kind of pull back a little bit now is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and one of the cool things for us is that. The, the, with the sour beer that we make, the price points are different. So we basically can make a third of the amount of beer as a brewery, as a regular brewery, and still have the same revenue and profit stream. So we don't need to bang it out every day. and We, we just don't have to have quite the same numbers. And so it's been a big part for my wife and I to make sure that we had balance. That's and awesome. What's the, so give us a little bit of context of distribution like what's the furthest away that I can grab and move on for screwing here that you know of? Um if you were to say mileage I would say probably Denton, Texas is the furthest away. Really? 
Uh, we, we go up to Denton. We have one retailer down in the valley, but literally one place down uh, like in uh, Brownsville. Yeah. <laughs> and then Corpus, uh, Houston, San Antonio. We do have beer now in Laredo, but we don't have anything in El Paso yet. So is that your goal? I mean, do you have somebody out there, or do you, you know, working trying to get spread into different states, and you know, is that part of the model that y'all are working on as well? Yeah, that's my job. <laughs> um, so no, if, yeah. So basically, what happened is, if you have a, a Pilsner six pack and you're trying to sell that at the store, you have to go deep in the marketplace to be successful. Uh, and that's actually you mentioned Guadalupe earlier. That, that's one of the fundamental differences in our business plans is that. He has to go deep in this area. Within 100 miles, he wants everyone to know his beer and everyone to love his beer, which is easy because it's fantastic. But um, for us, we make a polarizing product. Like if you walk in and you've been a Miller Lite drinker for years and you open up a Blondine, it might literally blow you up. <laughs> and some people in a good way. Yeah, yeah. But um, it takes a little bit of time for us to convince some of those people why our beer is, is awesome, amazing, and different. Right. Because it's so different, it's just it's hard for them. So we have to go wide. And uh, we should be shipping beer to California, in fact, in two weeks. And then we've got a distributor in Portland behind that that's supposed to be coming online. So our idea instead is to go kind of throughout the country. Because mm -hmm. um, in any given market, like in San Antonio right now, there are six bars of wine that we make. And they'll love it. They'll, they'll sell through it very quickly and works well. But if I were to try to go to Chili's and sell Cagabondine, people would literally lose their minds. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> which actually you mentioned the pickle beer. Yeah. That is one of the funniest beers we've ever made. It was literally an experiment. We did it one weekend as a joke because I had pickle juice in my fridge. Yeah. And if you go look at it, there's some online rating sites. People literally give it a one or a five stars, right. and the people that give it one hate me personally. Like, <laughs> what is wrong with this guy? What kind of idiot would ever make this? And the people that love it are the ones that will drive from wherever. Like we have people that were coming from Corpus for a while before we were down there. They were just buying whatever they could and driving back. But the people that hate it, right, passionately right. hate it. It's interesting you said when you're talking about kind of the market depth or term you use, with, but I imagine once you do connect with somebody at that level. They have to be like the hugest advocate for you and Wildwoods Brewing Company because it's it is it is such a unique uh -huh. experience uh -huh. to have a sour beer from this place and a pickle beer. I mean, it's definitely a unique experience, and I imagine you probably hear a lot of it. It's got to be good to hear that type of stuff, right? Yeah, well, the people that love it are fun to talk to, and they understand what we do. Like you look at our glassware and a lot of our marketing, it, it says drink outside the lines. Yeah. So it takes a special person to like it, but once they go outside the lines, they like, why the hell will we have here the whole time? Exactly, so exactly, one exactly. Of the, one of the coolest experiences I had with you know, my wife just went through like this year stretch where we drank nothing but Florida Mollock. We would go, every barbecue party we went to, we had to pick a get some. <laughs> And we just stumbled across, it was the first craft beer festival. I volunteered at that one. And no, it was before we volunteered. Yeah. We all met up there, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. And they had Florida Mall on tap at that festival. Oh, that's right, yeah. And it was like cheap. It was crazy cheap. I think the secret's out on that craft <laughs> beer festival. But anyways, we drank probably two pitchers. <laughs> and I tell you what, man, that was a... Uh, it's definitely an experience. We learned uh, you got to pace yourself on that type of stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't walk out of that. Yeah, I didn't walk out. Yeah, you I crawled out. out. <laughs> but anyways, that was um, that was kind of our our time. Where we're like, you know, this is not a Miller Lite. Um, this is pretty potent stuff, you know. But man, it just 
It is. It's it's so good, you know, palatable, and I, and I enjoy it. You know, especially the food. Yeah. Amazing beer. So so tell me about the uh, uh, distribution. I'm curious about it. So. Do you have to send samples to these distributors to get them to like try it? I'm sure they try like hundreds of beers all the time, right? How how do you stand out? What is it that you do? Do you have a trick? Do you have like a just perseverance to get through to them? I mean, that must be a tough sale. Yeah. So well, especially now, um, five years ago when we started uh, looking for distribution, there were so so few breweries. Like even in Texas now, there's three times what they were at that time. And every one of them wants to be in that market. Absolutely. Multiply that by um, the rest of the country and even internationally now. There are all these new brands trying to buy for the same four distributors that handle a market. It's truly insane that with the explosion of craft beer, we've maybe got uh, uh, twice as many distributors. Like they're just in San Antonio, for example, there are four and a half distributors still for the whole market. And there are thousands, like tens of thousands of SKUs. There's no way that the sales staff can even understand it all. Right. So, it, for a new for a distributor to take on a new brand, there's really there should be a lot of thought process there. Um, and so, the way to distinguish it is, for us, I've, I've, I'll go research the distributor first. And so, what, what I've decided instead of saying, "Dude, I got to be in St. Louis. That's my market. If I'm not in St. Louis, I can't be successful." And then finding the best of the worst distributor that can do it for me doesn't make any sense. So what I've done instead is some of the some of my peers, uh, Jester King here in, in Texas, example, um, and then like the brewery in, in California, those guys, I'll go look and see who distributes their beer, who understands what they make, and then I'll research that distributor and see where our beer would fit in that portfolio. Is there nothing but sours and so we're going to get lost, or is it where they're all sours but they have this different category and so you know, we can sneak in and be something totally unique and different? If not nothing else, price point, because we are typically a little bit more affordable than some of those big guys um, for some logical reasons. But um, and at that point, then I've got a sales pitch to make, mm -hmm. and I'll reach out to them uh, and make a phone call and ask them who to talk to you and find the vice president of sales or whatever, and open a communication and see if there's an interest there. Then I ship samples, and then I follow gotcha. up. Gotcha. Because the beer itself will, for, in my opinion, will sell it every time. If they understand where it can fit, and you know they're again inundated, so they're so busy that at some point there's like, whatever, why why do I care? Um, but there's a distributor in, in uh, Colorado, for example, that he and I are having that conversation still back and forth via email, where he has such a deep portfolio and it's a fantastic distributor, and I really want to be with them, but he doesn't really have an incentive to pick up any new brand for one, but even ours, and so. It, it's a challenge sometimes. That sounds like it, it does sound like it's kind of almost a closed market too, uh, to some to some extent. That if there's no option for you to get into the distributor to the um, to the marketplace, it's you know it almost shuts down your whole business. Um, but I think with having your your tap room open is is nice too. Do you find that the tap room is self sustaining for your business and that it's a different type of market, or does it all kind of help? you know, the, the overall business. Yeah, so my wife kind of runs it as a standalone bar. Um, in fact, we even, the way we set up our pricing for draft is the same uh, numbers that a bar would use. So we actually have the same multiple so that it, we can tell whether the, the tap room itself is doing fine and making a profit. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Early on, we considered it a marketing expense. And so the idea was like, even if we lost money, this is our opportunity to connect with customers and, and explain to them why we do what we do. 
and it still is that, but it's, it's that in a profitable setting now. Sure, uh, sure. That, that makes a lot of sense, too. Can you speak a little bit about where kind of you guys are at on the regulatory environment, kind of around breweries and, and what's going on in Texas as far as the rules of billing? You know, that you speak to mm -hmm. the details better than I do. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, uh, you know, what Keith was talking about, too, is that, you know, there's a difference between Texas craft beer and craft beer and these conglomerates coming in and, and buying out, um, you know. That's his soapbox, by the way. Yeah, that, yo, for sure, for <laughs> sure. Do you get mixed up into that, or you just kind of keep your blinders on and just make great beer? You guys have a little different market. So it's yeah. Be different. Yeah, and honestly, there aren't as many of these conglomerate players in the space that we're in, and so we. But the sours, especially. Yeah, right? um, and, and Azure Bush did buy a sour brewery recently um, on the East Coast, and so you know, at some point, yes, it becomes more of an issue, and and in the health of the industry overall is helped by everybody giving a crap. So it's not like we do just because it doesn't directly affect us doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to it. Sure. But, um, there's a lot of very strange laws. Uh, the most recent one that was passed makes so little sense that it has to be a long game for them where they know that it's going to get torn down and because of that they're going to get something else that they really wanted. I don't even understand it. Well, what was the law? Basically, in the last session they changed it where if you are a big brewer, uh, and I think it was 250,000 barrels or something like that, but part of a big brewer conglomerate. So even if you're a small brand in a venture capital firm and that venture capital firm has enough breweries to get over that cap, you can no longer um, not use a distributor. You're mandated to do so. So even in your tap room, you have to sell your keg to the distributor and then buy it back from them. Oh. Which doesn't make any sense. Knowing full well that's not going to happen. There's, it's a bump tax. They're just going to say, hey, how many did you sell? They're not actually going to take it to their warehouse and bring it back to you. Right. So, which is obviously the nonsense of the whole thing. Right. Um, it, and it, it affected, I think, three breweries, and it was pushed through by the mega breweries. And so the, the fact that it was pushed through, through by the people who were getting hurt by it, and it was completely misrepresented. There was a letter that went out from, I think one of the distributors had written it, basically standing for all of, like it was something we would just sign as independent distributor or independent uh, brewers and it was worded in such a way that we were supporting this bill when it, no one even really understood what it was at the time or why it was doing what it was doing and then it ended up passing which makes no I, I don't know how it did well at least they're doing something it doesn't make any sense which this kind of makes sense just with uh, Nate at Treaty Oak yep mm -hmm. yep. yep we actually had a podcast out of Treaty Oak and different experiences he yep. talked about it um, a oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he had kind of the same type of theory. Um, I wonder if it's also because the, um, you know, it kind of sounds. And you said it doesn't make sense, and I don't know a whole lot about it, but just kind of the outside looking in. If it's if it's targeting biz, big business, it sounds like it would be good for your business. But then, like you said, it makes absolutely no sense. So where is the where is the actual benefit for the law? Um, did they did they talk about that? Like, what was it supposed to do, or is it just? To benefit small breweries so that they they could maybe be more profitable, I suppose. Yeah, that's how they kind of portrayed it. Sure. That, that's how, how the distributors portrayed that we would feel, but the distributors are the one making money off the space. So the whole thing didn't make any sense in that regard. But um, in, effectively, it would benefit me in a way, right? Sure. Because obviously, it raises the amount of money that it costs when these mega brewers to, to do business in, in Texas. Uh, at the same time, have you ever been to a tap room at Budweiser? No, no one's going to attack them. Right. Right. So what? The, what the hell's the difference? Yeah, um, and so, and this has nothing to do with distribution to regular bars. It's just to your own tap room, right? right. It effectively made no change whatsoever to it. 
Um, and, and so in, in that sense, I'm not sure what they were trying to accomplish there, but the only thing that makes any sense, and we've seen this happen before, where they will pass this law for one segment of the market and then say, oh, you know what? We really need that for everybody. Yeah. And so maybe three years later, four years later, they're planning on coming back and doing, I guess it'd be four, because I said it's two years. They're planning on coming back and doing that for the rest of the, the market, but there's no way they would get it passed. I and mean, people would literally lose their minds, because there, there are 10 breweries they tell you right now that will close their doors if that happens. Um, yeah. you know, small brewery. This is this is the lifeblood of your brewery, and a lot of times is, is having your own tap room. So yeah, and I hear it's I hear it's very capital intensive as well. You said you know you know that big investment that y'all made to get the scale that you wanted. So for anybody that's going into business right now as a brewery with that large investment, um, that large liability on their books to come in and be taxed again, which they probably weren't expecting, could you know ultimately shift their whole business and maybe not even start, so that's not good either. Speaking of taxes and fun shit like that, um, <laughs> what about, oh, shifting it up a little bit, you know, there's a bunch of discussion about growth here in the politics. Mm -hmm. Economic development, all those fun type of things, everybody's got their own stance. Um, you know, here we are right here in the heart of, heart of the Ruffles, yeah. Ruffles, and kind of a happening scene down there. Where are you at on this whole Castell thing and just economic development in general in the Braunfels, your thoughts and how that impacts your business? Because you're, are you, are you locally from New Braunfels, you know, born and raised? Or are you a transplant? How long have you lived here? I lived here when I was five. So you're, you're I, born, you're born and raised. Basically. I graduated Candy. My wife graduated New Braunfels. House divided. Uh, not really. <laughs> That's why she, she's New Braunfels, so she works in numbers. Unicorns <laughs> <laughs> are mythical creatures. So there's nothing to fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what do you think about this Castell project? Yeah. So honestly, when it comes to politics and news, I literally stay out of it, um, meaning that I don't even pay attention. I just sort of stick my head down and do what we're going to do. Um, honestly, I don't know what the Castell project is, so if you want to tell me, yeah, I'll go my for opinion. It. It's, it's basically, so, you know, we've got a, uh, you know, the, the old, what is it? Right by the Civic Center, there's a big things going on as far as they're going to expand into a hotel. Oh yeah, okay. They're going to turn Castell Street into basically like I don't know if you've been like to the Domain in Austin, that type of or the Pearl. Yeah, where it's almost um, shut down essentially. Right, right, and you know, so you can see there's two. It's a very polarizing subject. You know, people are either really, really excited about it, which a lot of business people are. A lot of economic development people are really excited about it. And then you got a lot of, I mean, it's new models. So there's a lot of people who are like, oh, and like, that's a horrible idea. We're losing our, what new models is. And then you got folks that are from California that have been here like six years and they're like, I, this is not why I moved here. We're ruining <laughs> what my beautiful new Bronco, all those ones. Yeah, right. But I think from a business standpoint, I mean, I work in a, at an eight to five kind of with a larger company that builds some infrastructure stuff. And so, I like to hear from small business owners kind of what their thoughts are, and you know, I know that you guys are probably going to be the most objective of anybody on this subject. So, sure. I mean, what do you do? You want do you see that growth downtown or here kind of shifting towards more of a like a scene? Is that kind of what you want? Is is that what you would be happy with? Right. Or do you like it the way it is? I would say that I've traveled enough to know that they're not going to win the fight even if they try. Yeah. So look at Austin, for example. Austin's entire plan on the uh, roadways was don't build it and they won't come. That was a genius idea. Yeah. It doesn't work. So the growth and progress is going to come regardless. And so I would, 
for me personally, it would it would be make more sense for us to be able to wander around downtown easily, um, and and have more access to different things. I mean, downtown's a really cool place. I think it has a lot going on. It, we could definitely have more. Um, lodging is obviously our biggest issue, and then so is parking. So if they don't have a parking garage in that plan, right. that's a really there's a plan. Idea. Yeah, right. It's not a popular. Yeah, and and, and and I mean, I get it. I think the the conversation that John Hill has a lot and that I have to agree with is, you know, if you don't plan, you plan to fail. And kind of your point too, it's going to happen regardless. Get involved, make sure that it's something that you can, you know, be happy with and live with. But, you know, if we do nothing, it's just going to turn into like 17 Outback Steakhouses right next to each other and that's not going to do good the for drum, anyone The either. drum I'm beating on this whole thing is what, dude, we're in the middle of Austin and San Antonio. I mean, we can... You can throw your arms up and say no all day long, but it's going to be outback steak, you know, steakhouses and chilies in the square, you know, in ten years. Or you can have this thing planned out, have the community be involved with solutions, and I think that's a better way to go. Yeah. You know, I yeah. just do. I, I don't. I don't think there's any other way to be realistic about it. Yeah. But, um, well, what we have now is, is really cool. There are very few franchises downtown. It's, it's literally kind of a, right. a homegrown organization. And if they could just scale that, that would right. be fantastic. And yeah. I think that's what they, the, a lot of the economic development is trying to aim for. But, you know, when you just go, you, know, you cross your arms and you're like, no, I don't want any of that. I don't want more breweries downtown or I don't want more restaurants from local business owners downtown. I think that's a dangerous place to go. Well, what happens when you do that, and uh, you'll see us all the time, if you, the harder you make it, the only guys who can afford to hire the attorney and spend the time are the guys that are making Absolutely. these humongous projects Absolutely. that aren't homegrown. So right. if you make it easier and open to independent local businesses, then you know, when you get the inheritance from grandma, you can afford to do something. Yeah. And, and that's what we should really be trying to do. Speaking about a little bit more about finances and, and starting the business and homegrown, what was your hardest situation or area of business that you found the most challenging when starting your business? From the startup perspective? Mm -hmm. um, well, for us in this industry, it was equipment procurement. So when we decided to rebuild and get new equipment, we paid them in October, and we took delivery in March, May. Like, Holy moly! So, and, and obviously to do that, so then if you don't own the building, well, if you do own the building, you're still paying taxes. There's still expenses there. But if you don't own the building, finding a landlord that'll give you ten months, twelve months of uh, <laughs> you know, deferred rent, essentially to start, sign a lease today, but I'll move in in a year. Um, luckily, our landlord's a cool guy, and uh, he understood it. And he wanted a brewery in downtown, and blah blah. blah. But at that point, there was a lot of sitting on my hands trying to wow. entertain myself, essentially. But you're trying to do the planning work, but then also how much can you plan? Because it was supposed to have been delivered in January, and then it was March. And then it was, we, got, we got two things in March, and the rest came in May. So that was really the hardest part, I think, of opening a brewery for me was just that extended timeline. Um, when we opened gyms, I opened one in 60 days once from signing the lease to moving equipment in, and I had 200-something members already signed up. Like, um, it just it was a, it's a very different. Sure. How much uh, sleep did you get during those months? Was that like be surprised torture? Yeah. <laughs> do you do you, was there any time during that ten months that you were like I made the bad I made a wrong decision? Yeah. Like did you have buyer's remorse at any point? I'm gonna go work for the man. I gotta go back to work. <laughs> I know my wife did, but I, I don't think I ever did. No, you were just head on. You're like you're ready for it. I I, I find that 
the business, especially starting a business, there's always these kind of incubation or waiting periods for whatever reason. Typically, I found that it's legalese, you know, waiting for some document to get back or whatever. But that's a really good point. And I think that that is a huge um, struggle for a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs and business owners because entrepreneurs by nature are like kind of fast going, you know, kind of go, 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 go. And to sit for 10 months. And you can't do anything. Like, I mean, you could. I mean, there's certain things that you could, you probably did and, you know, branding or, or recipes, small batch recipes. But you know as well as I do that probably it, it's not the same. And so you kind of have to wait. I mean, I, I just imagine that would just drive me crazy. What was your uh, – so you've been here since you were five. I mean, a lot of – I almost picture you like, I don't know, selling lemonade or something at like 11. But did you like work like – start off working at Slurbon at 15 or something like the rest of us? Or were you like opening breweries when you were 12? Or what did, what did that look like? I can't um, even picture you working at like a 9 to 5 or something like for the man, so... I worked at uh, the Tube Shoot as a lifeguard for a while. Sweet. Nice. That was my favorite summer job. And then um, I actually got certified as a trainer and started my own personal training business when I was... 19? I guess, yeah, it's like an athlete, 19 years old. So entrepreneurialism is kind of just in your blood. Is that for your parents? Sure. Just so that's an issue one. But two, I've had so many managers throughout the years that weren't the best at what they did. They were typically a manager because, especially in sales, you see a lot of people who get promoted because they had good numbers, but it doesn't mean they have any idea how to lead people, right? So I had a lot of bad managers that I was able to see throughout the years. And then I just I always wanted to do something myself, create something myself. Um, you know, from the artistic side of it, for one, but um, you know, two is just wanting to do something fun and exciting that I got to run with and didn't have to ask somebody permission for. Yeah. We like to ask about it. How many employees do you have working for you now? Um, I always forget how many are in the front in the tap room, but I think there's five, six people up here, and then I have uh, one brewer that runs all the production, and then two of the guys that work up here in the front help us on bottling days too. So, so do you? So, how do you lead your people? What do? You, what's kind of the mantra or the the culture that you try to set at New Braunfels Brewing um, that your that inspires your workers to create great beer, create a great product? So, with Nathan, he and I worked. Nathan's our head brewer. Um, he and I work together where it's a collaborative effort. Um, I want him. He he tastes the barrels throughout the process and says, "Hey, here's where I think we are." And you know. I, I try to give him the flexibility to come back to me and say, no, these two got to be dumped. And I'll typically taste them too, just to double check so I know where it went, but I'm not tasting them to argue with him. Sure. Um, and so he every once in a while gets to come up with something completely new. We have, uh, I want to say 200 pounds of uh, cranberries back there being fermented, uh, simply because he was like, dude, I made a cranberry beer once. I really want to make a cranberry beer. I'm like, but I don't like cranberries. <laughs> Yeah, but I want to make it. I'm like, all right, fine. This is going to be your pet project. You do it. And so I try to give them the flexibility to be able to kind of run their way within the framework of what's best for the company. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's awesome. So we, as we kind of get close to wrapping this up, um, it sounds like you know, you've kind of known for a while what you wanted to do in some capacity. Um, one of the things we always ask people is uh, going, looking back, Go back to when you were 19, maybe when you were opening up your physical training. You probably you all swole, like buffed out back then, too. And I was always a small now. guy, but I had muscles. Yeah. <laughs> Still has muscles, John. Yeah, Don't be rude. I know. Uh, that didn't come out right. But, <laughs> anyways. Um, I'm a brewery under now. I don't <laughs> if you don't have a beer belly, then you really can't be a brewer, right? Yeah, I was just yeah. saying, I'm working on mine. I'm, Never I'm, trust a skinny chef. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> 
So if you could go back, you know, to that 19-year-old kid and give him any piece of advice or, you know, tell him things that you that he probably needed to hear, what would you say? To that kid, I would say slow down a little bit. Um, pay a little more attention, save some more money. Um, Details. I mean, pay your bills on time. Let me know what maybe he should know. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah I mean, early on, um, I, I kind of embraced that concept of I don't really follow the rules very well and did more or less whatever I wanted and kind of you know, party hard and um, had some great experience traveling the country, but I, I feel like early on I didn't give myself the confidence to. I, I should have. I actually almost started a business at 23, owning a gym, and I didn't. And I, I probably should have done that. Right. Well, but luckily you're here now, and New Ravels Brewing is a awesome business, and it's yeah. thriving. And y'all have gone through troubles, but it seems like, you know, that you've been able to work through them, and you have a great staff. Um, what? Uh, where should everybody find you? Website, phone number, hours of operation on the tap room. Anything coming up here in the next couple of months yeah. that you want to talk about? Yeah, well, the best place to find us would be to come to the brewery in downtown New Rumpels. Uh, we're open Thursday through Sunday. It's Thursdays uh, 4 to 9, four to nine. Friday is 2 to 10, Saturday is 11 to 10, and Sunday is 1 to 7. Um, so we always have unique limited releases here, uh, and, and anything we're releasing to the big market, we will actually do here first. So if you check us out on Facebook, it's NB Brew. Uh, Twitter and Instagram are both NB Brew as well, and that'll show you the latest and greatest of what's coming. This weekend, for example, we released a uh, barrel-aged uh, wheat sour beer, re-fermented with raspberries and blackberries. Based on Sea. Is this uh, the one that you're saying is going to be mind-blowing? That one's actually having essence. So in two weeks, we'll release that one. That is a blend of nine different barrels uh, that were all they all held different, all held blondine, but in different things before that. So some of those barrels were, uh, two of them were a collaboration with Guadalupe Brewing Company that we did. One of them was a collaboration with a winery we did. So you get a little bit of honey in it, a little bit. It's just an amazingly complex beer. Yeah, it'll be about somewhere around the 8th or something like that. 8th of December. Mm -hmm. All right. Heard it here, folks. Yeah, we, we got the, the hookup. Make sure you come by here and check out, what is it called? Heaven? Heaven Essence. Heaven Essence. I, I would be willing to bet we'll probably be yeah. here. Yeah, so. we'll catch us around here. <laughs> Well, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We appreciate all learning a little bit more about New Rumpel's Brewing, and uh, we wish you the best of luck in everything that y'all do. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate you guys coming. Appreciate you letting us hang out here, yeah. too, and about to start dabbling in some sours. Yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, man, really cool experience, and, uh, you know, we'll, maybe we can get you back on here in a year. We'll do some... See where you're at. Yeah, we'll do an update on, on uh, kind of where the business is at and all that type of stuff. So, yeah, sounds cool. great. Awesome. Everybody, thank you for listening to Cheers to Business Podcast. My name is John Kublink. And this is John Hill. And as always, cheers. Cheers.